Okay, I want to thank everybody for coming uh, this afternoon uh, to our panel, which we we're calling a land plan for Texas. My name is Nate Blakesley. Uh, I'm an editor at Texas Monthly Magazine. I'm honored to be on the stage with our four distinguished panelists today. Um, I've been asked to remind everybody to silence their phones and uh, that if you want to tweet, please use the hashtag uh, TribuneFest. Um, let me introduce our panelists. To my left, we have uh, Senator Kip Averett. Um, uh, Kip is a certified public accountant and a state and local tax consultant for Ryan and Company. In the legislature, uh, Averett served in the uh, Texas House for 10 years before winning a seat in the state Senate, where he served as chairman of the Senate Natural Resources Committee and also sat on several other committees, including education uh, and finance. Um, next to him is, uh, we're privileged to have our Texas Land Commissioner with us today, Jerry Patterson. Uh, Mr. Patterson was elected uh, the 27th Texas Land Commissioner in November of 2002. He was re-elected to a third term in 2010. From 1993 to 1999, uh, Mr. Patterson served as state senator for District 11, which included Harris, Galveston, and Brazoria counties. And he chaired the first Veterans Affairs Committee in the Senate. He is also a declared candidate for lieutenant governor in 2014, as I'm sure most of you know. Uh, to his left is Laura Huffman. Laura is the state director for the Nature Conservancy of Texas. Um, where she heads a team of more than 80 scientists, conservation experts, and support staff. She served as deputy city manager for the city of San Marcos from 1994 to 2002 and as assistant city manager for the city of Austin from 2002 to 2008, leading watershed protection and economic development initiatives for both cities. And then on the end we have Carter Smith. Carter is the executive director of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He has served as the executive director since 2008 as a biologist, he has worked on a variety of research projects ranging from studying moose in the boreal forests of Saskatchewan, to which I believe is not in Texas, to <laughs> mule deer and pronghorn antelope in West Texas, to waterfowl in the Laguna Madre of Texas and Tamaulipas, Mexico. Um, thank you so much for coming. We're going to do uh, about 45 minutes, and then we'll have 15 minutes of Q&A. So if you have questions that I don't get to, um, Please feel free to remember them, and then we'll have mics, and everyone uh, will be welcome to join in at the end of our session. Um, let me start by just sort of asking a, a big picture question, which is sort of, I think, uh, looming over everything in Texas when we talk about land in Texas, and that is the fact that Texas is 97% privately owned. We have one of the states with the least public land in the union, particularly for a western state. Um, our population has, has rapidly grown, doubled since the 1960s, but our, our acquisitions of public land have not kept pace, at least since the 1980s have not kept pace. Um, and yet, how can we ask Parks and Wildlife, how can we ask you, Carter, to acquire more land when the legislature is reluctant to fund the department adequately to take care of the lands that we already have? And this is not a new problem there, you know, of course, especially since the recession, lots of states around the country are having problems funding state parks. State parks are often the first to be cut. Uh, if you go to California, you wanna, you wanna camp in a campground, you often pay as much as $20 for a, a tent pad. Is that the future that we're heading towards here, Carter? How can we solve this, this ongoing conundrum of insufficient funding for the state parks we already have? Well, I guess first and foremost, I mean, I would never advocate nickel and diamond our park users to death to pay for new parks, new land acquisition, and improvements to state parks. I don't think that's the right way to go. Um, 
I think it's of paramount importance that we keep parks affordable and accessible to all Texans. You know, we get 8 million roughly visitors a year. It's critical that we provide those public places for them, again, given the preponderance of private lands in the state. Um, I also don't think it's a, an either-or proposition. Um, you know, just for, for reference, we've added land to 30 or so parks in the last four or five years and, you know, some fairly significant pieces on the Devil's River, the new Palo Pinto Mountain State Park west of Fort Worth, um, Kronkowski State Natural Area, just a short 30-minute drive from San Antonio and in, in, in Bandera in the Hill Country. So. We've got to think about state parks in generational terms, not two-year budget cycles. Um, you know, we are acquiring land for generations that haven't even been born yet, and so I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, I'm also not sure that I would go looking for uh, two birds in the bush when there's a bird in the hand with respect to state park funding. Um, in 2007, the legislature passed legislation to provide funding through a portion of the sales tax called the sporting goods sales tax. Um, that is a method of financing that I think most Texans strongly support. Um, and so I think we have a funding mechanism that is there. It just needs to apply to help address the needs that are there. Let me ask you just real briefly about that sporting goods tax, because that's something that came up uh, when I, we were talking earlier about whether or not that money, which is being collected by the state of Texas, is actually making it to your agency or not, because we hear that that's one of those many supposedly dedicated funds that are frequently swept in order to certify the budget. The House Bill 12 that was passed in 2007, um, according to that legislation, 94% of the proceeds from the sporting goods portion of the sales tax, and, and what that is, that's not a new tax, that's the sales tax, and it's that portion of it that it's attributed to about 18 different sporting good items. Um, about 125, 126 million are collected from that portion of the sales tax a year. Um, the 94% to go to fund state parks was always made subject to appropriation. So I think it's important for everybody to understand it is always a legislature's prerogative to decide how much they want to fund. Um, last year, 27 million um, was funded for state parks. Um, and so about, uh, well, a little less than a quarter, obviously, of that amount. And when we say, that there's a shortfall for ongoing maintenance and recurring expenses at state parks. Can you help people understand what that means, what that looks like when you visit a state park? What's at stake? Well, obviously we strive to have our state park shine for all visitors. I think that's critically important for local economic development, attracting clean tourism, uh, not only from inside the state, from outside the state. We think that's very, very important, and nature tourism is unquestionably one of the fastest growing segments of our tourism economy. Um, most of the state parks that we have in Texas were acquired in the 30s and 40s, back in the CCC days. So uh, they have some age on them. Um, and we have a long history of deferred maintenance inside the, inside the parks. And I think everybody knows with their own property, their own homes, um, the more those decisions are put off to fix little repairs, uh, the bigger the problems get. And so, uh, so we have, literally have hundreds of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance that need to be addressed, um, and that's a, that's a huge priority for the state park system. Yeah, uh, Senator. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to chime in. I, I've, I've seen the schizophrenic legislature, which I was an integral part, um, go from budget cutting scenarios to doing major funding of parks. Uh, we cut, we fund, we cut again. Uh, it's up and down, and it's uh, it's an insecure process for a planner like Carter. And what <clears throat> there there are a few things I think that that could be improved upon. And one one of which, of course, is 
Uh, I think we need to give some of our agencies like parks a little bit more discretion on how they use their funds. Um, sometimes uh, our budget process is too delineated, too prescriptive for, um, for um, and, and this is me talking, this is not Carter. I, uh, I, th I think sometimes we're too prescriptive in giving them instruction on what to do, and sometimes they know better, or things change during the course of a, uh, a biennium, and uh, uh, they might find opportunities to spend money differently than the legislature had previously appropriated. So I think they need to, they need to have a little bit more discretion in that process. But also, uh, I think that we need to uh, start thinking outside the box when it comes to how to fund our parks. We've been real skittish about allowing corporate contributions uh, uh, in, in that realm. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I think that there's a foundation that, that has some corporate uh, sponsorship. But I, I think we need to start looking uh, to a bigger picture on how we can do things with our parks. This is part of, this is our Texas culture we're talking about. And it's vastly important to millions of Texas, Texans that we do something um, uh, appropriately uh, big for Texas uh, in funding our, our parks. We, we like our wide outdoors. Mm -hmm. We're real proud of that heritage. And, and as our state grows, our populations continue to double, uh, we get more and more encroachment. Um, I heard uh, uh, quote the other day that east of Interstate 35, the average size of a family farm is now 10 acres. So uh, the, the vastness of Texas is slowly disappearing, and it's our parks that we're going to look towards for the public's access to that part of Texas history. And I'm sure everybody, if you live in Austin, you know about the demand for, for public parkland in central Texas. If you, if you don't, you just drive to Perdinalis Falls on a nice Saturday, and you may well not be let in. So many people, if, if you get there late enough in the day, so many people want to visit that park because it is such a jewel that they'll cut off the number of cars that come in. Well, let's say we did find a source of funds or, or the legislature was willing to free up the funds that are supposed to be going to Carter's agency. Where are the priorities for purchasing public land? And I, let me throw this out to Laura uh, or Carter or anybody that wants to jump in. What parts of the state should we be looking at and, and what uses? Because it's not just recreation after all. There's also purchasing for conservation purposes. Um, what should we be looking at? Go ahead. Well, I think w one thing that I would do is just pull the cameras back a little bit from thinking about this topic just in terms of state parks that are used for public access because the department does way more than that and is intended to do way more than that. And so if you think about what we're trying to accomplish in the state of Texas and how we're going to manage this basic dynamic of growth, land in Texas is used to do three basic things. We've got a huge agricultural economy. We've got a huge water issue uh, that can be solved in part by what's happening on land. And of course, we've got the oil and gas industry. So if I was going to talk about how Carter's agency could help contribute to you know, making sure that we manage that dynamic in such a way that we do have food, water, and energy for the future, I'd focus on those pieces of land that contribute um, to the key areas of water. You know, the, the most at-risk rivers and streams in Texas and aquifers. And there has been healthy investment in this part of the world in that regard. It's been at the local level, but San Antonio, Austin, and all of the counties in between have invested over $800 million in open space to protect 
the Edwards Aquifer. So those kinds of investments are available, and I think that uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife can help contribute to the solution of water on land. Well, I certainly concur with Laura that working to protect our water is, again, of, of, of critical importance, um, no doubt about that. And so we need some different strategies and solutions to be able to accomplish that, both from a surface water perspective and a groundwater perspective. With respect to the, the, the land issue, if we're going to have meaningful conservation at any scale, the private landowner has to be part of the equation. Um, and so we have to be talking in terms of voluntary, non-regulatory, incentive-based approaches in order to encourage conservation. And so I feel very, very strongly about that, and it's a, it's a big push for us inside the department. You know, fortunately, we've seen a preponderance of interest in that. Um, you go back and look at the A&M Real Estate Center and the primary motivations for why people buy land back 95, 96, 97. Uh, that motivation shifted from agriculture or economic reasons to conservation and recreation. Um, and so we see that reflected in the demand for assistance from our wildlife biologists who provide wildlife management planning to landowners on now, you know, almost 20% of the state. Um, and that's really pretty remarkable if you think about it from that scale. Back to recreation, if we're going to meet the goals of the Texas public, we've got to look at acquiring land where the people are. Um, and 85% of us are in nine major metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. And they tell us over and over they want a couple of things. They want places to hike, uh, they want places to walk, and they want places where they can be with their family. Um, and so um, looking to provide funding to help build out those state parks that are in and around those urban areas, uh, reactivating the local park grant program, which is a very, very well leveraged grant funding program to communities throughout the state to help acquire and develop local parks to provide that kind of recreational uh, access. And then I agree wholeheartedly with Laura. Local ballot initiatives have been enormously successful. You go back to 1991, nine out of 10 have passed in, in, in Texas. And so there's a, a real strong sense of support for that. And Nate, just a quick example of where this stuff comes together and really works. One of the most recent acquisitions by the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department was on the Devil's River, where they now own a state natural area and a state park. The Nature Conservancy owns a preserve, and that whole mosaic is surrounded by private landowners who've put easements on their land. And that is exactly the strategy that works. It's the all-in land strategy. You need a public investment. You've got to have the private landowners involved. Um, and we would get further faster if the program that was set up in the General Land Office had funding in order to promote the acquisition of conservation easements on private land. Commissioner, you want to jump in there? Well, the private sector and private land has to be involved in this or we will not be successful. If, if only because 95% of our land is privately owned. Of the 170 million, 72 million acres, we don't really know how many acres are in Texas because the surveys were pretty primitive in the 1830s. If we don't have private stewardship, if we don't put the private, there are a lot of folks who have lots of money who want to do good things. And the problem with that is that we have a, a certain embedded community of folks who only believe that land that is owned by a public entity, whether it's national parks, state parks, or whatever, only that will work. And that's not true. The private folks have to be involved in it. A classic case of that is, is a gentleman uh, named John Poindexter, who has lots of money and enjoys restoring land to its natural state. But if he comes along and decides he wants to buy attractive land, the controversy, I mean, it just people just go catatonic on that. You're talking about Christmas Mountains? I'm talking about Christmas Mountains. I'm talking about Big Bend Ranch State Park. There was a really good deal that Parks was, was looking at, uh, you know, several years ago uh, that uh, this gentleman was going to buy 
a substantial amount of acreage out there that would allow parks to use the money for something else, possibly acquire other land. Uh, he was going to restore that. Uh, we've got to have private partners in all of this. Let's remind everybody what the Christmas Mountains case Well, was. we've changed the name. It's now the Hanukkah Hills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really Christmas for you, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we figured that maybe that name had worn out. But the Christmas Mountains controversy was 9,300 acres, totally inaccessible, uh, surrounded by private uh, land with one small contiguous corner to Big Bend National Park, no public roads, and it was had perpetual conservation easements. In other words, it would never be developed. It would never be subdivided. You couldn't build a structure. You couldn't put a road. It was forever protected. And it was donated to the state of Texas. It was uh, donated to the state of Texas, and the land office ended up with it because parks didn't want it. The national park didn't want it, and the state park didn't want it because it's not suitable for parkland. It was solely a area to be preserved. Uh, parkland has to be accessible in order to be parkland accessible other than by air, you know, other than by parachute. So, uh, so we were going to sell that. And we had two bidders. One of them was John Poindexter. Another one was a gentleman at Dallas uh, who was a developer. Well, the opposition said the land office is selling uh, the Christmas Mountains to a developer. Well, the guy was a developer, but that doesn't mean he was going to develop because that conservation easement, which was held by the conservation fund, mm -hmm. was never going away. Mm -hmm. And either of these bidders was interested in eliminating invasive species, restoring water, uh, restoring the habitat, and you know, and repopulating with species that were native to that area. In other words, improving it. Mm -hmm. But the furor that arose, actually it was kind of entertaining, it kind of kept you busy, but we have a lot of that stuff going on. The other one we were talking about was the uh, in Tarrant County, Eagle Mountain, Eagle, Mountain Lake. Eagle Mountain Lake. Parks owned 400 acres in Tarrant County, Eagle Mountain Lake, and Parks wanted to sell it for lots of money and then go buy another, what, 3,000, 4,000 acres that was better suited. But the furor that arose, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it, we're selling our heritage, we're selling parkland. Mm -hmm. You know, you get half the story, or the or the uh, the land swap in Black Gap Wildlife Management Acre, uh, Wildlife Management uh, Area, mm -hmm. uh, where parks conveyed to the general land office 12,000 acres, and that created a furor, because you know this was in an election year, so therefore, you know, uh, Governor Rick Perry and Jerry Patterson are selling our heritage. We were going to sell that acreage, but what the story didn't tell you was that we conveyed to Parks, 19,000 acres. Actually, a little more than that, 22,000 acres. Net gain to park, 10,000 acres. Plus, we blocked up land that was contiguous exactly. to that which we owned. We had inholdings that needed to be blocked up, so you had one large contiguous wholly owned area, and we had, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So it's hard to do the right thing sometimes because folks want to take cheap, cheap shots at you, and they have this mindset that only public ownership can result in good stewards. Well, to be, I mean, let me be the devil's advocate for a moment. With respect to the Christmas Mountains, it was, after all, adjacent to the National Park. Yeah, and not really. But technically, there was, out of the 17 uh, perimeter miles, there was one mile that was contiguous to one mile at Big Bend National Park. It yeah. was completely inaccessible. Yeah. yeah. But if you want to take the long view, look 30, down the, 30 years down the road, Certainly, it was possible that other holdings contiguous to Christmas Mountains would eventually become part of the national park. I mean, certainly, that's the dream in Big Bend is that 
yeah. something like Big Bend Ranch will happen, where a very large parcel of, of privately held land. Well, you know, you have to make choices, though. Use. Do you want to spend your resources on a 9,300-acre area that nobody wants to go to to add to a how big is Big Bend National Park? Two hundred thousand? No, Big Bend National Park is three quarters of a million eight hundred thousand acres. Eight hundred thousand acres. Yeah. Do you want to you know do you want to take ninety three hundred acres and go through the angst and the expense of doing that, or do you want to add something that's in a better position to be a better part of the park? There was no reason to go to the Christmas Mountains. It's really pretty unremarkable, but we created a unbelievable furor mm -hmm. uh, over the selling of our heritage. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a, what I'm saying is is that the public has to be a little more informed when they get involved in these things and there are a lot of folks out there who feed off of a public that they can keep uninformed. Mm -hmm. Whether it's at Eagle Mountain Lake which was a good deal Absolutely. and turned out to be a good deal. Turned out to be a great deal. Yeah, uh, but, we got two parts for one. Yeah, you yeah. ultimately sold it and now you've bought, uh, I don't know what you've had, the transaction. We're now almost up to 4,000 acres there west of Fort Worth, a transaction that the Nature Conservancy and the Trust for Public yeah. Land held. And I think your point, Commissioner, is, is a good one. There are some very well-established, innovative, entrepreneurial ideas that the land trust community use all of the time to yes. help facilitate very real and tangible, measurable conservation. Um, it's much harder to do that in the public sector because um, sometimes of the lack of awareness of understanding or trust about what's trying to be uh, affected or accomplished. And so that really can be an impediment to achieving more conservation at a place at times. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, and let me direct this both to Commissioner Patterson and, uh, and to Carter, do you feel pressure from the legislature at a, at a time like this when we're facing record budget fault shortfalls to, to shed public land in order to bolster either your own budget or the state's budget? Well, last session, I mean, we were not asked to, to sell any land. We have not gotten uh, that directive um, at all. Um, as any fiduciary of a public asset, you know, in this case, your state parks, um, you know, we are always looking at that portfolio to make sure that um, we are accomplishing the most we can with those areas and that we're the best steward of those sites. And there are times when we find that there may be another property or another area that lends itself um, in this day and age to being a more suitable state. Um, and we may have a property that's a, that's a legacy of something that was acquired way back when with great intentions, um, but really doesn't make sense for us to own and steward, particularly when there's another steward out there that may even have more funds and resources to take care of that, of that property. Uh, last session, we were asked to look at uh, the possibility of transferring seven state parks to local communities around the state. Uh, we ended up transferring one of those, Sebastopol, which was um, uh, a house inside the city of Seguin that was representative of a certain type of architecture back in the, back in the 1800s. Um, and so when you think about the mission of parks to provide you know, outdoor recreation and, and, and conservation, I, you know, arguably the city of Seguin probably a better steward of that. Um, yeah. And so that made, that made sense. Uh, recently at Lake Texana, we ended up um, giving up a lease that we had on the, on the lake uh, back to the River Authority, who already had a park there on the lake and was willing and able to take on the ownership and operation of the park site that we had there at Lake Texana. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, you know, we have strategically acquired other parcels that add different conservation amenities, different recreational opportunities for the public um, that I think ultimately are going to provide a net gain uh, to, the, to, the, to the state. And we still see the conservation and recreation um, benefits of those properties protected. They're just, they're just owned and stewarded by somebody else. Mm -hmm. 
And the answer for me is no. And the reason it's no is the land that I am responsible for is constitutionally dedicated to the permanent school fund. The legislature can't tell me to do anything with that land. Uh, but I think it's a really important definition to, to bring out now. When you say public land, that means different things to different people. Uh, public land for the public access for recreational benefit, that would be parks. Uh, but we have a lot of other public land. We have permanent school fund land where there is no public access to it, except to the extent that we allow or lease it. We have permanent university fund land uh, when there is no public access uh, for recreational benefit to that, except as the we lease that. Those are money-making trust lands that are not public lands in the same uh, definition as parks. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really, really important point. And in fact, I think too often the discussion about Texas Parks and Wildlife ends up being a discussion about whether or not we're keeping up on an acreage basis with parks for growing state, and it ignores the natural resource job that that agency is also trying to accomplish. And an important point needs to be made here. That doesn't just have to involve the acquisition of land with public money. Uh, a lot of natural resource protection all over this country and all over this world is accomplished hand in hand with private landowners. And the example of Christmas Mountains is actually a fair one because that conservation easement was a legal agreement that goes in perpetuity that limited all of the activities on that land that the conservation fund thought would put those natural resources at risk. Mm -hmm. And so I think you just have to make this conversation bigger than just how many parks do we have, how many acres of uh, accessible parks do we have for recreation, because the biggest challenge we're going to have a state is not just making sure people have places to go on the weekends and have recreational opportunities. That is incredibly important. But the biggest problem we're going to have is making sure that our set of natural resources, which is what got us here in the first place as a successful state, are well protected. And we're not spending nearly enough time talking about that. And in the case of water, we're spending too much time talking about it and not enough time funding it. Well, and I think it's a great point, Laura. If you think about our natural heritage and where Texas sits um, geographically, just either because of scale or accident of geography, um, we have an extraordinary amount of biological diversity in the state. I mean, we've got more birds, more butterflies, more reptiles than any other state in the country, second most plants, second most mammals, third highest rate of endemism. I mean, we've got this extraordinary natural heritage. If you look at um, where those gaps are in terms of what's conserved, and I agree wholeheartedly that the only way it's going to be done is through voluntary partnerships with private landowners. If you're going to have, have it any kind of scale, um, you know, you've got maybe five or six percent of geographies conserved, West Texas, the coast, East Texas. You get up in the rolling plains in the, in the, in the panhandle, and that quickly drops to, you know, maybe half a percent. So. Uh, if we're going to look at where we're going to focus, certainly grasslands provides uh, an area as well as, as water is one of those habitat types that's been often overlooked and for which there's been uh, nominal funding at best to help a, a, critic a critically important ecological uh, function and, and a part of the state. Let's talk for a minute about the program that Commissioner Patterson does have in place to buy development rights to land without actually taking ownership of the land just paying an owner right. of the land not to build on that land. Yeah, we have a program the legislature uh, gave us in uh, 2005, I believe, uh, called the Farm and Ranch Lands uh, Conservation Program. And it's uh, a program whereby we buy development rights, commonly called purchase PDR, purchase of development rights, for agricultural land to allow that land to not be, to ensure that it's not subdivided that it's not converted to another purpose other than ag or, uh, you know, or hunting, 
uh, farm ranch land conservation. So we will go to that property owner. Actually, they come to us and say, I'd like to sell my development rights. And so that protects it in perpetuity or in, in some particularly long period of time. I don't know what, I think our minimum easement might be 30 years. I don't know, I'm not sure, but we buy that. And that's a great program. That's the good news. The bad news is it was not funded. Uh, now we have cobbled together money uh, for three uh, coastal uh, farm and ranch lands um, PDRs, but we've been limited to coastal because we are using CIAP money, C-I-A-P, Coastal Impact Assistance Program, which is a, a program the legislature has funded off and on uh, that the land office administers. So we use some CIAP money, some extra money that we raise from other sources, and we've done two or three of those. In fact, this coming Monday we have a uh, Farmer Ranch Lands uh, meeting, and we've got three properties on the agenda mm -hmm. for possible funding for purchase of development rights. Is the taxpayer getting their money's worth from a program like that? I mean, I understand the conservation value of not having a thousand acres broken up into a bunch of little hundred-acre parcels and yeah. you know convenience stores built on them. But if you're not, if the landowner can get this money from the state of Texas without actually for example, stopping farming or whatever he's, which might be a very heavy impact that he's already himself or herself having on the land. I'm just wondering if the conservation value is worth the taxpayer's money. Well, it at least stops something far, if you assume that ag uh, activities are bad, and I don't assume that at all, but let's assume that it would be better for that to go back to his natural state, just for the sake of discussion, but it at least stops the further degradation of subdivision into ranchettes. And it also maintains habitat, because a lot of this, I mean, one of our easements uh, is uh, held by Ducks Unlimited. I mean, this agricultural endeavor also is a tremendous wildlife benefit uh, for waterfowl. Mm -hmm. So it's a habitat. Uh, so those are not, uh, ag and conservation are not mutually exclusive. But to be clear, we're also not restoring that. It's, it's not a program, in other words, to restore an ecosystem. Like no, but we have some of, we do use the CAP money that we are sometimes appropriated to do uh, marine estuary restoration along the Texas coast and bays and estuaries will will recreate habitat habitat you know for a marine nursery for smaller you know little fish so they don't get eaten by the big fish I guess is you know I'm, I'm an Aggie I had one mm -hmm. course in biology but um, so we do we do some of that yeah. as well. well let but me they ask can how that they, yeah, they how can that be used the, the terms of a conservation easement are highly configurable so you can um, uh, you can prohibit the introduction of exotics you can uh, require people to replace those native habitats and and I would say absolutely it's worth the taxpayers dollar because you get about three times the amount of man land under protection with an easement than you do with a fee simple purchase so yeah. in San Antonio where their single source of water is the aquifer and they have to protect that body of water um, that program started 15 years ago with fee simple acquisition of land and they made a lot of headway that they've made twice as much headway since they have converted to making that an easement program. But is there a big difference between what the Nature Conservancy asks someone to give them in their agreement and what the GLO asks for? I think that would be the sort of the bottom line. Well, in this particular case, we help them structure those easements. Uh, but no, if you were to look at if you were to look at a lot of the easements in the state of Texas, you'd find that the the tool of conservation easement when it's used to protect an ecologically significant area, tends to do the same kinds of things regardless of who's negotiating it. Um, but in San Antonio and in Austin, we help with those easement negotiations. And, and just one quick other thing about that, those are very popular with voters. 
Those propositions pass um, by wide margins every single time. You mean bond propositions raise money in for San this Antonio? Kind of they're authorizing the use of sales tax, and in Austin they authorize the use of bonds. But in either place and with either tool, they're quite popular. Carter, did you want to jump? Well, I just I think to build on that, I mean, you're right that an easement per se does not impose an affirmative obligation on a landowner to restore habitat, but it also doesn't impose a prohibition. And I think. Um, most all landowners that enter into a voluntary agreement. And it's important to remember these, these are voluntary. They're not compulsory. So they're making this choice on their own volition. In this case, they're getting paid something. But they also have a real predilection to go ahead and start enhancing habitat, whether it's for waterfowl, mm -hmm. wading birds, deer, turkeys, non-game yeah. species, et cetera. So you, you really see those things go in concert. I think the other important concept that we need to introduce here is that of public values on private lands. And whether it's mm -hmm. aquifer recharge and water quality, whether it's endangered species habitat or habitat for game species that we um, hunt and, and fish, um, aesthetics, open space, um, all of these things really are going to be found on our private lands, again, if we're going to conserve those at some kind of scale. And so the concept of paying landowners for those public benefits, ecosystem services is well established um, in models, local communities, but also across the country, really not across the globe. And that it, gets at the incentives we need to try to come it up with. It creates a financial incentive for that landowner. Let's assume that landowner has a duck lease, you know, he, he makes revenue off of that. And it's in, it's in that landowner's best personal financial interest to preserve, maintain, and enhance the habitat for waterfowl or for, or for whatever species yeah. you're hunting. Well, not to put too fine a point so on it, but if he's already getting revenue from... we're killing them is what I'm saying here. <laughs> if he's already getting revenue from the duck blind, then I just want to, I mean, I, you know, we're all conservatives, we're all Texans, we don't want to throw taxpayers' money away on, you know, if, if someone is already conserving their land because they have a duck lease on it, then they... It allows them to get more bang for their buck? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> oh my God! You quack me up. <laughs> there's a there's an underlying there's generally an underlying purpose but, uh, on the granting of these easements and, and, and generally that is that we are protecting something. We're we're either trying to protect an aquifer or a river or a, mm -hmm. a, a, a natural grassland area or a uh, environment uh, species. Uh, but there's there's a there's a reason for doing these things. It's not just uh, you know, uh, it's not just a hodgepodge um, yeah. uh, process at all. Let me let me let's steer back to recreation just for one minute. When we were discussing uh, earlier what we ought to be talking about, Commissioner Patterson brought up the beaches. Obviously, Texas is blessed with some wonderful public land along our beaches, but there was a recent. Texas Supreme Court decision that is called into question a very long-standing tradition in Texas, which is that the beaches belong to everybody. And I just wanted to get Commissioner Patterson's yeah. thoughts on that. I'm named in a lot of lawsuits, and uh, this lawsuit was Severance versus Patterson. A lady named Carol Severance from California bought some beachfront uh, structures, some beach houses, and then when we sent her a letter saying that, you know, the erosion may. Uh, place your structure on the public beach easement. We didn't threaten any action. We did said we just gave her an advisory notice, and we offered her forty thousand dollars per structure to help her move it to to some other location. Well, she sued us, um, saying that that was a taking, and basically the the issue uh, became the validity of the Texas Open Beaches. Uh, common law statute and constitution, and our Texas Supreme Court 
uh, outcome-based as it is, uh, and I'll be have to tell you, you know, we had a reputation about a court that was outcome-based in the 60s. We have one now that's also outcome-based. Um, they decided they wanted to be perceived as pro-property rights. So they essentially, uh, in their ruling, in my view, and it's, my view is accurate, uh, <laughs> they, uh, yes, they gutted the Open Beaches Act. And, uh, and a decision is, is, is essentially incomprehensible because what they said was the property line rolls with erosion, but the easement, the public beach easement that was between the upland owner's property and the wet beach, state on submerged land, only rolls if it's gradual erosion. It doesn't roll if it's catastrophic evulsive erosion as a result of the storm. That's completely undecipherable unenforceable and it just basically gutted the Open Beaches Act. But I have an idea and uh, we think we might be able to fix that legislatively, which you go, how can you legislatively fix something the Supreme Court has ruled on? We have an idea. But uh, that was not a good day for Texas. Texas has always had the concept that that beach, the dry beach, is started out as a highway. And the public always has a right to go there. I know we're all proud of that. But our court, it wasn't a unanimous decision. There were three good guys on that, uh, good guys and girls, uh, gutted that. It's not a good day. Um, let's go back just a bit. We, we touched on the importance of land fragmentation. Um, but we never actually said why it's important to not have our habitats fragmented. Can someone speak to that without? getting too wonky on us. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll try uh, at that threshold. Um, you know, I mean, first kind of put this in perspective. I, I, you know, you asked about the farm and ranch and why that matters. You know, Texas leads the nation in the amount of farm and ranch land lost to development each year. Um, and so, you know, our agricultural heritage is important. Also, I think as we've established, uh, our farm and ranch land is critically important to wildlife and other, and other, other public values, which we think are worth conserving and at times, you know, paying for. Um, when we're talking about fragmentation, we're talking about taking larger tracts of land that are parcelized into smaller and smaller and smaller parcels. Uh, wildlife are free roaming. Uh, they typically require large contiguous blocks of habitat to be able to survive and prosper. And so the more fragmentation of a habitat there is, the less likely it is that fish and wildlife are gonna be able to, 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 to thrive. And so that's why it's a concern in the, in the conservation community, the level of fragmentation that we're seeing in places like the Hill Country. I mean, let me disabuse folks of our romanticized version of a Texas ranch. Um, you know, the average or median track size sold in Texas in 2011 was 74 acres. 2011 in the Hill Country, 65 acres. So, um, you know, we do, the, our, our vast ranch lands for which our state has been so well defined for so long are really going away. And I think that is a real concern for a lot of reasons, ag heritage, open space, wildlife habitat, et cetera. What can we do about high fences, if anything? I think um, it, what matters more is what happens uh, behind the fence. Um, and so high fences aren't going away. They're here to stay. That's a, that's a, that's a fundamental property right. And our perspective has really been how do we work cooperatively with private landowners to manage the habitat behind the high fences and utilize all appropriate tools there to enhance, enhance habitat and to try to design those fences in a way that they don't restrict the movement of, 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 of certain species of wildlife. 
oftentimes high fences are put in uh, for defensive reasons. Um, people have uh, ranches in which people are hunting all up and down their fence lines, um, or and so they're they're concerned about trespassing and poaching and so forth, and they end up being compelled to do that. Mm -hmm. um, Nate, can, can I make a sure. quick comment about yeah. the coastal topic? I, sure. We left it, and I want to say one thing about that. We're we're in the midst of one of the single most significant opportunities to invest in the Gulf of Mexico that any of us will see in our lifetimes because of the um, Horizon oil spill. And both of these agencies, both of these men fu function as trustees for the NERDA settlement, uh, which is a billion dollars prepayment for restoration of affected areas from the oil spill. And beyond that, the Clean Water Act fines and penalties will generate uh, estimate the estimates are anywhere between 10 billion and 30 billion dollars worth of fines and fees that are paid for that oil spill and federal legislation has now been passed that will send some of that money back to Texas that is an infusion of money into this state and our ability to address some of the pressing issues in the Gulf of Mexico that is completely unprecedented and the state of Texas will have a lot of control over how that money is spent through the NERDA trustees and also through the governor's office it's, uh, it's like mailbox money. I mean, it's free money, although there's a lot, there's some things we haven't worked out yet. But the good news is that Texas had virtually no impact from the BP oil spill, uh, maybe 25 gallons uh, total, because we also clean up the beaches. I mean, we're the oil spill cleanup guys, but it's free money. You're right. I forgot about that. And I, and I guess where I would respectfully disagree with, with Commissioner Patterson on that, and it gets again to how fish and wildlife move, they don't care if they're in Texas or Louisiana. So. Um, you know, Kemp's Ridley sea turtles that nest on our beaches or redfish and trout and shrimp that move back and forth between Texas and Louisiana, you know, there's no doubt that we had impacts to our fish and wildlife from the spill. Now, the, the impacts may have been in another state, but were those Texas species or Louisiana species? And so, as we think holistically about the Gulf of Mexico, the importance of investing, you know, these dollars um, in critical conservation and restoration areas that will help further uh, facilitate the recovery of the Gulf mm -hmm. more expeditiously is, is, is a great opportunity for us um, and we need to make the most use of it. We have a few minutes left before we go to Q&A and I just thought I would see if I could get us started talking a little bit about the ways that we use public land that have changed a little bit in the last generation. There was a time when, when, when most people thought about spending time outdoors, they thought about hunting and fishing. There are a lot fewer people hunting and fishing these days, which is causing a lot of, a lot of consternation in the conservation community because that, that, those two communities drove a lot of conservation in this state. Is there anything coming up to replace that interest in those two outdoor activities? Does that, do you foresee a shortfall in public support for open land if those two activities continue to decline? Well, I. I still see very strong bipartisan support across every sector for conservation. Um, every single attitudinal survey that's conducted across the state shows strong support for conservation. Now, people may have respectful disagreement about the strategies for accomplishing, but in terms of getting to the end game, um, people are strongly supportive, um, strongly supportive of our personal responsibilities to invest in lands and waters and, and parks, strongly supportive of protecting our fish and wildlife and heritage. Water um, is off the charts in terms of the public support and, and investing in, in conservation. 
Interestingly, on the fishing and hunting side, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just completed their five-year survey of participation in hunting, fishing, and wildlife-associated recreation. So for the first time since 1991, we actually saw an increase uh, in fishing and hunting participation, 11% uh, for fishing, 10% for hunting. So uh, that's that portends better things than what we've seen in the past. Now, is that keeping up with the growth of the population? No, it's, it's, it's not. And so that gets at your other issue. How do we make sure that we're providing opportunities for other outdoor enthusiasts um, through state parks and local parks and opportunities on private lands and public waters? And that's very important to, again, a public that by and large uh, lives in nine major areas. And so we've got to provide those access opportunities. The other thing we have to provide are mentorship opportunities. Most kids are growing up in families that don't know how to camp, they don't know how to hunt, they don't know how to fish, they don't have those skills, and therefore they are somewhat fearful of taking their kids into the into the outdoors. And so that's a real barrier that we have to we have to address as a state. I, I want to concur that the, the attitudes of the, of the public have changed dramatically over the years. Y'all have heard me say this before, but 30 years ago, if you were an environmentalist, you were a communist, and you could not wow, get elected. <laughs> Holster that. <laughs> but today, if you're not concerned about the environment, you're a goober, and you can't get elected to public office. Because Republicans, Democrats, independents alike are very much engaged and involved and concerned about preserving um, uh, our natural resources uh, that we are so blessed with here in the state of Texas. So um, I, I believe that there's always going to be strong support uh, for uh, a strong parks program. And I'll just add one little footnote to that. I think one of the things that's interesting when you look at those attitudinal surveys is that it's not just that people support this issue. Unlike a lot of big complicated problems, people feel personally responsible to help do something about it. So the area of conservation and protecting natural resources isn't one where people are pointing their fingers and blaming some, somebody else. People feel like they need to do something themselves, which is why when any one of these agencies or our organization reaches out, um, we, you know, we get people by the droves, and it's because people want to engage in this arena. Good enough. Um, let's open it up to questions. We have about 15 minutes left. I understand there's a couple of microphones somewhere in this building, in this gentleman's hand right here. If anybody has a question, you can come down here. This fellow here. Carter, how much money do you think you need in order to maintain the park system in the order that it should be maintained in? Well, it, it depends upon how you define that need. Um, but, um, you know, certainly if, if you just look at our deferred maintenance across the system, you know, we're talking about amounts in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and so that's not going to happen all at once. And so we can certainly prioritize um, that and make sure that we can have those investments in a very steady, a steady fashion. Um, we had had, a, through our State Parks Advisory Committee, had put together a 10-year plan for state parks that basically called for, you know, roughly $100 million a year in investments that would help fund operations, land acquisitions, some grants to local communities, and also um, maintenance and capital repairs. Um, we, we, we do. And, you know, to put it in perspective, and Commissioner Patterson knows this, knows this well, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking at major capital repairs and construction, the best business practice, you're going to allocate 4, 5, 6 percent on an annual basis to the gross, gross asset value to invest back in that construction and repair. 
you know, we conservatively estimate the value of our facilities at, you know, $800, $900 million, which, by the way, is an egregiously low um, estimate. But, but if you just do the math on that, you know, it's $32, $35 million a year that you would just need in capital repairs and construction. It's the old, it's a legislative scam of dedicated funds. And that is a scam. It's always been a scam. And, uh, you know, like Kip, I probably voted for it and was a participant in it. But when you look at uh, the legislature will do things and they'll say, we're going to dedicate this fee or this whatever or this extra dollar on this transaction or this license for this purpose. And everybody says, well, you know, we don't like you raising our taxes, but you told us what that's going for and we're okay with it. And then the legislature flips it, it sweeps it, and use it for something else. It's a lie, it's a scam, and we need to quit it. And they need to get all the money or something or, or eliminate the dedication. Quit, quit fooling people. Another question? I think we have one over here. We have two over here. So we've talked. We've talked a little bit about how much money it would take to uh, maintain our park successfully. Can you all talk about both, I mean, from the agency perspective, the NGO perspective, and the legislative, legislative uh, perspective about how you move forward? What kind of coordination is there in between different agencies? What kind of legislative direct directives are there to those agencies? Laura, how is your group working with the different entities looking forward on where and how uh, you want to provide public land for, for Texans. Laura, you want to start? Sure. Um, okay, so how we'd like to think about this is I think of it in terms of marine, fresh water, and land. Um, I like that organizing principle. In marine, I've already said it, those Restore Act monies and the NERDA money is going to be the single largest financial infusion for generations. And so the restoration that we want to accomplish in the Gulf of Mexico on behalf of the state of Texas, those are going to be the vehicles. And, it, and, and the money's just incomprehensible. It's like nothing we've ever seen in that body of water before. And freshwater, I think we, you know, you all have heard it all day long from different panels, but we actually have a plan for how we're going to make sure that not only we have good in-stream flows to support the biodiversity of our state, but that we've got uh, reliable, safe access to fresh water as our cities and industry grow. A lot of emphasis now is on the energy water nexus, which is, you know, just one of the uses of water we've got to protect. That plan is unfunded. So in order to animate the mechanisms in that plan in order to provide water for a future, we're going to have to have legislative approval of some funding mechanism. I think you can pair that with some uh, realignment of existing state programs that already fund, to some degree, water projects around the state. That's Texas Water Development Board money. And then on land, I, you know, Carter's got the financing mechanism. He's talked about that. And I just think that I actually agree with the statement. He either needs to get all of it or we need to stop playing the game. Yeah. Uh, I'd be in favor of making sure that he's got the entire financing mechanism because I think it's an important issue for Texas. You know, it suffers from that horrible problem in public sector, which is that it's incredibly important, but not urgent. Um, and I think what we've got to do is raise the urgency level of our land protection. And we need to allow Carter and the board to make good decisions and not go ballistic when they decide to sell a piece of property and take that money and buy something else that's far better suited for public use than the one they had before. We, we need to quit that stuff 
let them do what they ought to do. Well, and I certainly appreciate that sentiment. The, the flexibility matters. Several of y'all have mm -hmm. mentioned that, and I think That's having a, a little more discretion with respect to, to, to those funds to be able to accomplish goals that are, you know, well explicated so that people understand those um, are, are, are important. You know, you asked the question about collaboration. Collaboration between our agencies and entities happens every single day. Our biologists from General Land Office, uh, Nature Conservancy, Parks and Wildlife literally are talking every single day. Um, with respect to your question about public lands, um, the Nature Conservancy has been a big help with respect to acquiring uh, parks and WMAs to add into that system. I mentioned the new Palo Pinto Mountain State Park that was an artifact of the Eagle Mountain Lake issue that Commissioner Patterson uh, articulated. The Nature Conservancy went out and, and located the property, negotiated the deal, and, and, and put it together. Uh, we are using some preliminary oil spill dollars to, to add land to mm -hmm. uh, at Goose Island State Park to protect land for or habitat for whooping cranes. So there's a lot of that that goes on every single day, and I think um, uh, we're very proud of that collaboration with GLO and, and TNC and the department. Good question. I feel like we had one more over here, this gentleman here. Just take that just a, another step forward for Commissioner uh, Patterson and, and Director Smith. And um, as you know, well know, we've been dealing, uh, as, we, as we always have, but in Texas most recently, uh, with the Endangered Species Act. And as far as collaboration is concerned, uh, are your, uh, uh, your agencies, uh, how are you collaborating with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and, and, and your work on the endangered species? Well, we've obviously, uh, Carter. Or, go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll. You know, we've the profile, high-profile species has been the dune sagebrush lizard, and and uh, there's a whole other uh, list of species queued up up here in Round Rock or up here in, in Williamson County. But the problem, fish and wildlife is a is a pretty good bunch of guys and gals. The problem we have is that some of these decisions are being driven by litigation as opposed to science. And again. In this case, fish or nymphs is not allowed to do their job because they are being sued, uh, and it allow it, it, focus, it puts them in a defensive mode rather than a science mode. Uh, but I've got really good cooperation with fish and the people I've talked to you know, on the endangered species. The problem is they're getting uh, hamstrung by decisions in court that drive things as opposed to science. Well, and I, and I agree with what Commissioner Patterson said. You know, for those of you that were here back in the 90s, you will remember the Golden Cheek Warbler Wars. Um, and that was a very difficult time for private landowners, uh, the conservation community, the legislature. It was just trench warfare. And, you know, thankfully, we found a better way. Um, and that was a real spirit of voluntary collaboration with private landowners to protect these rare and imperiled species that we feel are important to protect. But we designed voluntary incentives and safe ways for landowners and industry and others to participate in the conservation of, of, of these important species and communities. Um, so the litigation that has come about recently is an artifact of, of, of two environmental groups that have sued the service to compel a listing review of you know hundreds of candidate species for listing has now placed a huge burden on the on the state of Texas where in the next five years we have 105 or 110 species that we have to provide as a state a biological review of the status of those species 
um, to help meet the, the timelines of which we were not a part of. We were not part of the settlement. We were not asked for our perspective on it. But yet we still have the responsibility for those species right now until they're declared, uh, if they are, uh, a federally protected species. So um, it's, it's caused a lot of stress um, uh, with, uh, with the state and has threatened to compromise and fracture um, some really strong relationships with, with, with private landowners uh, that, that I worry a great deal about. And so I, I hope that we're able to, to overcome this, uh, this point in time. I think we have time for one more, if we have one more question out there. There's a couple up there. Yeah. I recently had opportunity to attend a uh, presentation, uh, a conference organized by uh, Commissioner, PUC Commissioner Pablos, and the keynote speaker, the introductory speaker was uh, Professor Orbach here on campus, and he was talking about renewable energy resources within Texas, and of course that would have a a, a land uh, impact. Uh, the, uh, the, the content uh, was from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory elaborating on the tremendous renewable energy resources within Texas. And Dr. Orbach uh, went through each of those uh, typically solar and wind resources, geothermal resources, and he presented that data as multiples of our current electric consumption. So tremendous resource that we could use. And uh, that makes me curious about, uh, uh, so I guess it's directed towards uh, uh, Commissioner Patterson, um, our current uh, use of public lands in terms of oil and gas leases, uh, wind turbine leases, uh, and potential solar leases. Uh, what are the typical terms that, that those are done on? Uh, how do you see that uh, moving forward into uh, the future decades? Well, we, the land office manages about 13 million acres. That's about 700,000 that are surface fee ownership, uh, most of that west of the Pecos, and a lot of it is where we own minerals but not the surface, and two and a half million acres in the Gulf of Mexico. In the Gulf of Mexico, we currently have, uh, I can't recall the number, but we have about 125,000 acres leased for wind. We have about a similar amount of acreage leased for geothermal. That's the good news. The bad news is we have no production uh, because uh, credit markets are tight, Natural gas is, you know, $2.80, making wind non-economic. Uh, and we handle those just like we do an oil and, oil and gas lease, uh, although it's a different royalty rate. I mean, our oil and gas lease royalty rates are between 20 and 25 percent. Our wind uh, royalty rate is uh, escalated. It starts out at three and goes up to eight. And uh, so it's just like an oil and gas lease. And we're excited about that potential. Uh, we do have one existing uh, wind power uh, producer on state lands in uh, Culberson County. It's old technology. It's, I think, 200 kilowatt turbines as opposed to stuff now that's pushing four, uh, four megawatt. But it's a great opportunity. It's not economic at present. It will be in the future. And there's still some good news because about 8% of our load, which is the consumed electricity, not the installed capacity, but that amount consumed in ERCOT is wind. When CRES, when the Competitive Renewable Energy Zone transmission lines are completed, I'm, I'm betting that's going to be 15%. And not this past August, but last summer's August, were it not for coastal wind in the coastal bend, we would have probably had rolling blackouts. Wind is a tremendous part of our, of our load and our, in our electricity generation future in Texas. 
Well, I think that's a good note to end on. I want to thank our panelists again. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to come out and participate. Thanks, thank Dave. You.